Is that better? That's better. Okay. <laughs> I'll start over. Uh, we like good news, and yet often it's hard to find the good news. If you turn on the television, you go to any of the news stations, uh, they will have bad news from different perspectives, right? Um, and so it, it's often hard to find good news. And uh, I probably am going to reveal stuff I shouldn't reveal, but uh, my business in the last couple of weeks has had um, several complaints come in on stuff that we've done. And it, it has been an aggravation because, of course, I have to pass on that bad news to my employees so that we can improve on that. And uh, so I was... Uh, we, we made some adjustments, and then on uh, Thursday and Friday of this week, I got two really good Google reviews. And I was like, yes, I get to pass on the good news to the employees, right? And so we love good news. And that's exactly what the gospel is. It is good news. We get the word gospel from the Greek uh, euangelion, which means good announcement or good report or good news. And so we carry that on into our English with good news. And so what we want to do today is we want to hear what is that good news for us as believers. And we uh, looked earlier at the context of the passage that we're going to look at today. And uh, so I'm not going to, for the sake of time, look at every verse. But I do want us to focus on verse 20 and verse 21. And so if you have your Bibles, you'll want to refer to it as we look at these two verses. And what we find here is we find the gospel plea and the gospel plan. In verse 20, we find the gospel plea. And I want us to understand a few points about the gospel plea. First of all, it is a divine plea. Look with me in verse 20. It says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you, on Christ's behalf. In other words, the plea of the gospel comes from God. He is the one who is pleading through us when we share the gospel, through me this morning, through the scriptures. He is the one pleading, be reconciled. It is a divine plea. Also notice it is a diplomatic plea. By the way, all these start with D. How about that? Sometimes that works out that way, sometimes it doesn't, but they do today. It's a diplomatic plea. Uh, in verse 20 it says again, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is a diplomat who is representing the supreme ruler of a foreign land. And so if you go to Washington, D.C., you can go to the embassies, and there are diplomats there from all over the world that are representing their country, representing the sovereign of their land. And uh, so we as Christians, and as it, Paul is describing himself here, he is an ambassador for Christ pleading for people to be reconciled to him. And so there is a diplomatic plea. Every time that we uh, try to share the gospel with somebody, every time that we plead with someone to become a Christian, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, the, the word here, technically, is the word for elder. Isn't that interesting? So, as elders, in particular, we are representatives, in a sense, of God to the congregation. But even more than that, we, as all Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ, pleading with the world, be reconciled to God. Also, notice that it is a deeply felt plea. 
a deeply felt plea. It says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading with us or through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. You see those words? Pleading and imploring. The idea of pleading here is it almost has the sense of begging. And imploring carries the idea of this, this really heartfelt desire for something to take place. And so when we, as, it's not wrong for us. In fact, it is good for us as Christians to, to desire deeply and earnestly that people come to faith. And so we plead earnestly and deeply for people to be reconciled to God. But I also want us to understand what it is that we are to plead. And so there is the command here. The gospel plea is be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. The, the idea of reconciliation is bringing that which is separated back together again. It is the idea of an enemy becoming a friend. Notice a couple of things about this. First of all, it is a command. Be reconciled to God. So those of you who are not yet reconciled to God and you leave here not reconciled, you are living in sin. It is a command of God to be reconciled to Him. Secondly, there is an assumption behind the plan or an assumption behind the command. That is that there is a need for reconciliation. We're not born in a right relationship with God. The Bible says that we are actually separated from God from birth. That we are born in our sins. And the Bible says that we are enemies of Him until He reconciles us. And so there is a great need for this reconciliation to take place. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Most of you probably already know that. Know that. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not only do we sin in our life, we were born into sin. There is a separation that takes place from the very beginning of our life. And it continues until we are reconciled. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 speaks of us as being enemies of God prior to our reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says that we were alienated and enemies of Him. And then also notice that this is a one-sided reconciliation. Often when we think of reconciliation, we think about two people being brought back together again. And, and that is an idea of reconciliation. But there are two words used in the New Testament for reconciliation. One of them is katalasso, and the other one is dialasso. So you can see that just by the very prefix of the word, there is a change there. Dialasso means that, two things coming together and so being united. Catalasso means that there is one who is stationary and then one that's away that has to be brought back. I can guess, you can probably guess which one it is, right? In this case, it's catalasso. It is God who is not moved. God has done nothing wrong. God remains fixed from eternity in his holiness and in his righteousness. It is man who has gone away. And it is man who needs to be brought back. And so it is a one-sided reconciliation. And then notice that it is a passive command. In other words, it is a passive imperative. It says, be reconciled. It's not saying reconcile yourself. 
It is saying, be reconciled. Well, how, how does that work? We have commands like that throughout the Scripture. In fact, there are ten such commands in the New Testament that are passive imperatives. An imperative, if you don't remember from your grammar, is a command, right? So it's a passive command. We have be saved in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Be transformed in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be reconciled here. Be enlarged in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be separated in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be perfected in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Be filled in Ephesians chapter 5. Be empowered in Ephesians 6. Be humbled in 1 Peter 5. And be sanctified in Revelation 22 verse 11. In other words, what this gathers for us in terms of a picture is that God is doing a work. It is our responsibility to respond to that work. Does that make sense? He is, he is doing a work. We are to be reconciled, absolutely. We are to respond to the work that He is doing and so become reconciled. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 uh, describes this reconciliation as being brought to Him, being brought to God. It also, in uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, describes this real reconciliation as making peace with God. And so we see there is a great need for reconciliation. We, we have used the term or probably have heard the term reconciliation being used in a number of different fields, uh, maybe in terms of counseling. Maybe you've talked to a couple who are right now kind of at odds with each other and they've fought maybe and so they're kind of estranged and and what is our hope? Our hope is that they reconcile, right? Or, or maybe you've heard of somebody getting divorced based upon irreconcilable differences, right? Whatever that means. Um, that there, so we, that term can be used in that context. It can also be used in the terms of a court of law, where uh, somebody might be arguing that their testimony does not reconcile with the facts. And so it's this idea of not matching up. There's not an agreement there. There's not a coming together. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't match up. But I think probably the best way for us to understand the idea of reconciliation is in the terms of accounting. I have kind of a business mind, or at least I like to think I have a business mind. And, and, uh, and so I like to think of things in terms of finances and money and accounting. And uh, most of us, weren't really raised on how to understand money. And some of you in the congregation are of an older generation, and you were probably taught how to balance your checkbook. You remember that? Some of the young people look at me like, checkbook? Huh? What is that? <laughs> uh, balancing your checkbook, where at the end of each month, you would go through all of your transactions, and you'd test them against your bank account, and you would reconcile the two and see where there is a difference. And I think what happens is that often we are not careful with our finances, and so we make errors. It reminds me of a time I was listening to Dave Ramsey program. Some of you probably know the Dave Ramsey program. He's a financial advisor on the radio, and, and he has a network of counselors. And he was telling this story one time about a counselor who went to this couple because they were having trouble with their money, and they couldn't figure out how to budget properly because they didn't know where all their money was going. 
And so this counselor gets together with them and meets with them and starts going through their checkbook. And there's the regular expenses on there. You know, Dominion Power, $135. And their mortgage payment was $1,200. And they're going through all these uh, different accounting uh, transactions in their checkbook. And he keeps coming across this transaction that says ESP, $15.34. The next month, there'll be ESP, $135.88. The next month, there'll be an ESP, $78.44. He's like, I don't know, what's this ESP? And the couple goes, oh, that's easy. Air someplace. <laughs> that's, that's not the right kind of accounting. <laughs> uh, and, and yet, it, you know, it seems like sometimes that's, that's the way that we make our accounting. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work in the business field. Uh, earlier this year, I noticed that there was a $4,000 transaction error on my balance sheet for my business. That's a big deal. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice if I could just put error someplace and <laughs> call it good, but the, uh, the intentional robbery system, did I say that? I meant the intentional revenue service, the internal, they wouldn't, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't allow for that. That's not their proper accounting. So, of course, I had to set up a point with my accountant. We had to go through all the different transactions and make a, you know, make, the appropriate journal entries so that at the end of the year I could go and balance my books and everything would reconcile. And so that's the idea that we're thinking about here when we think about reconciling accounts. We're looking at balance sheets, we're looking at accounting, we're looking at making sure that the books match and that we're able to account for all the transactions and make the necessary procedures for that. And so uh, there is a need for this reconciliation. There is a need for an accounting. Those who have been reconciled, are you being ambassadors for Christ? Calling people to be reconciled to Him. And those of you who are not yet reconciled, I plead with you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to Him. Balance the books. Make sure things are accounted for. Do not leave here today unless you have made things right with him. And how is that possible? How do we balance the books? How are we made to be reconciled to him? Well, the good news is he has a plan. We see that in verse 21. And the plan involves several things. First of all, it, in, it involves, I think in my notes there, um, I had some wording. Scratch that. Here's the appropriate wording for the notes that you should have. That the gospel plan is substitutionary accounting. Substitutionary accounting. It just flows better. Same, you could put in the words in the original, but it's fine. Substitutionary accounting. So we have seen that the spiritual balance sheet, so to speak, is off. There's an error someplace. In fact, not only is there an error someplace, there's lots of errors, lots of places that are unaccounted for, right? So there needs to be an accounting. There needs to be a balancing of the books. And the good news is that God has developed a plan whereby all of that can be accounted for. And he can reconcile us to himself. And it involves divine substitution. Divine substitution. Look with me in verse 21. It says, For he, that is God, made him, 
that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so, you know, we read about this and we think, well, did Jesus have a plan in going to the cross? Absolutely, he had a plan. It was, it was planned from the foundation of the world. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption. It was a covenant that God made within himself, within the three persons of the Trinity, before the world began, that he was going to redeem his people. And he accomplishes that. He accomplishes that by involving himself in the plan personally and faithfully so that it could be completed. I like the way that it says, and, and this is my, my favorite wording in all of the Westminster standards. If you care about that, but I do. And so the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, in paragraph 1, says this. The distance between God and the creature is so great. So we can stop there. That's what, that's what I just talked about in point number 1. Right? That there's this accounting error that needs to be accounted for. There needs to be a reconciliation take place because the distance between God and man is so great. But then listen to what it says. That although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness, as, as, as their reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. You see, God in the very beginning, before time began, made this agreement with himself because there's no greater in which he could make an agreement with. So he made it within himself. He says, I am going to redeem these people that I will create that will fall and I will be able to redeem them. And I will be able to reconcile them to myself. And so it is a divine substitutionary accounting plan. God has a plan to bridge the gap of that distance between him and us. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, He who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before Time began. Isn't that incredible? That he would develop this plan before he even initiated the whole thing. It was necessary to be initiated by him, thought of him, and planned by him, and then carried out by him. Why? Because if he left it up to us, it wouldn't get done. And so this divine substitutionary accounting plan was his from the very beginning. But I want us also to understand that this is a, it's a double substitution that's involved. There's a double accounting that takes place. First of all, it's our sins on him. Look what it says in verse 21 again. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now what's interesting there is that that little three-letter word for can sometimes be complicated to understand what it's talking about. In the Greek it's really clear. 
That word is uh, huper, which better translated means instead of or in the place of. And so if you read it like that, what does it say? He who knew no sin became sin instead of us. He substituted his life for us, placing upon himself our sin. We uh, read a, or sang a song earlier, I had been singing it all week long when I uh, started reading this verse and meditating on it and preparing this message, uh, and that song came to my mind because I used to sing it some, I guess. And I sang it all week long, so I went to Graham and I said, Graham, can we please sing the song for service? And, and what does the lyric say? I had a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. You see that? That's, that's this substitution that is taking place. It is a cancellation of the debt. Why? Because all of our sins, all of what we owed, all of our trans transgressions, every sin that we have is placed on Jesus on the cross. He bore it all. That's why when he is on the cross, he calls out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God turns his back on him. Why? Because all of our sins are upon Christ. That's the, that's the, the debt that we owed. That's what we deserved on the cross. It's a, it's a debt we could not pay. I heard in the news this last week that our national debt went over $33 trillion. I, I can't put my head around how much money that is. But you know what? On a spiritual, spiritual plane, that pales compared to the amount of debt that we owe God for our sin. And every day that we are not reconciled to him, it compounds. But he has a way for us to be reconciled to him. By being a substitute and canceling out all of our sins, by placing our sins upon Christ. But if that were all, that would put us to neutral. There's, there's a need for a double substitution, and that is there is a substitution of his righteousness as well. And so it's not only just accounting where we are brought to zero, we are actually made positively righteous because of this as well. His righteousness has no limits. In other words, Christ is infinitely righteous. Now, you math people out there, Sorry if you're not a math person, but for you math people out there, if you take something from infinity, what's left? Infinity, right? And so if Christ has infinite righteousness, and he then applies his righteousness to his people, and they then are made as righteous as are necessary to come before a righteous and just God, did he lose anything? He's still infinitely righteous. How's that for some mathematical concept for you? Isn't that incredible? And so he is able to maintain his perfect and complete and whole righteousness and yet apply his righteousness to us so that we can then be clothed in his righteousness and stand before the righteous judge. 
It's a double substitution. And how great is it? The reformer Martin Luther spoke of the righteousness that Christ possesses as an alien righteousness, a righteousness in which we are clothed, the Bible says. And how does this accounting get applied to us? It gets applied to us by faith. What does the Scriptures say? Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, that's God's plan. Through his covenant, he said, through faith, these people are going to be able to have what I substitute into their accounts made possible to them and applied to them. We Theologians use the big word imputation of his righteousness. What does it just mean? It means that the accounting figures are balanced. He's able to wipe away the sin and he's able to apply his righteousness so that when we stand before the judge, he is able to look at the balance sheets and they're accounted for. And so we are able to stand before him in faith and in belief. Now there is a difference between acknowledging these things in our heads, understanding them, and being able to say, yes, that's true, and then actually living by them. Here's the difference. Did you know the Bible? Now, I know you guys know this because you're all smart, but did you know the Bible says that the demons believe the gospel and tremble? So are the demons saved? Are they reconciled to God? No. Why? Because they're not resting in the gospel. They're not trusting in it. They might have an intellectual understanding of it. They may know it up here, but they're not resting in it. And so Abraham had his faith accounted to him as righteousness because he rested on it. And so how are we reconciled to God? How is our substitutionary accounting applied? By resting in the truth of the gospel. And so I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Don't rest on yourself. The Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That won't stand. No, we have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have to rest on Him and His work on the cross and in His accounting to us of His righteousness. It is a work that is already done. You see, this distinguishes Christianity from every other religion of the world. If you wanted to summarize the difference between Christianity and every other religion, it would come down to this. They all teach, do this, or do that, and you can be right with God. You know what the Bible teaches? The work is already done. Rest in the work, and you can be before God. You see the difference? We're not trying to earn our way into salvation. We're not trying to work our way into a right relationship with God. We're resting on the work of Christ that's already done. Are you trusting in the finished work of Christ? If not, I plead with you today, be reconciled to God. Rest in the finished work 
of the great substitute who is able to not only pay your debts, but clothe you in his righteousness. Now that is good news. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we are grateful to you that you have not only orchestrated a plan whereby we can come into a right relationship with you and be reconciled, but you've carried it out. You carried it out through the work of your son upon the cross, rising again from the dead so that his righteousness might be able to be applied to us. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is yet to be reconciled. I pray that you would be working in their heart even now, convicting them of their sin, turning them from it and turning them to you so that they might rest in your work and that they might be reconciled to you. Make us ambassadors for you, pleading and imploring with others to be reconciled so that you might receive the glory that is due to you alone. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.